Amen. If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Mark, chapter 1. The book of Mark, chapter 1. Men, this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 29, shares with us the fear that many of us have. It's a man in his home and his mother-in-law has moved in. Can I tell you guys, Jesus will show up when your mother-in-law moves in. (laughs) You know, just when Simon thought things, just when Peter thought maybe there was hope, what does Jesus do? He comes in and he restores her to health. Is that too far? Let me just say, I have a wonderful mother-in-law who listens to my sermons regularly, and I love her. And I hope one day to build her a mother-in-law suite and move her into my home. And I'm so thankful that if she does listen to this, we don't have video. So she can see my face. If you have your Bible, stand with me in honor of God's Word. We are in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. And in this passage of Scripture, we're going to learn a whole lot about ministries of mercy and the way that we care for the world around us. Let's read together. And immediately, remember that is Mark's favorite word. Immediately, where was he? He was in the synagogue. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus wasn't going to allow them to give up his secret. He was going to be revealed on his own terms. Let's pray. Father God, show us how we can change the world. One person at a time, one church at a time. Show us, God, how we can be your hands and your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. How are you making the world a better place? You know, for all the the ire that we as Christians receive occasionally, the thing that we should be known for as much as anything else is making this world better. As gospel-believing Christians, those who have been changed, who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, those who have had their sins forgiven, who know what this book is all about. Of all people, we should be making this world better. The world should be different. Individually, Christian, you should make the world a better place. The world should be better because you're in it. Our church should be better because you are in it. It should be the case that you have worked so diligently to impact the world and our church that your absence would create a huge hole. Have you ever thought about if if you died tonight, how would the world miss you? How would our church miss you? One of the saddest realities is when a person leaves our church and we never miss a beat. One of the saddest realities is a person leaves the church and we never miss a beat. I didn't say we didn't miss them. I just mean nothing changes. Nothing is affected. Because they were not an integral part of the ministry of the church. Y'all, are you an integral part of the ministry of this church? Do you have an impact on the way that the church functions and the church works? 
Now, don't get a big head just because we might miss a beat when you leave. Let me, let me assure you, we are all replaceable, okay? We are all replaceable. We might miss you for a couple of days, and in our heart, we may miss you for a long, long time, but don't ever believe that you're so important to God's kingdom that nobody can stand up and take your place. God's going to raise up somebody to take Billy Graham's place, and if somebody can take Billy Graham's place, trust me, you ain't no work, okay? We're going to be okay. We're going to figure it out. But individually, the world should be over. But of course, the, the world should also be better, not only individually. The world should be better because the church of Jesus Christ should make a powerful impact upon the community in which it resides. This community, not only the immediate surrounding, but our community, our city, should be different and better because Malvern Hill Baptist Church exists. And if we were to all suddenly move out of this community, we, just, we were like one of those, those, um, those cults, and we just all up and moved and created our own little community out in the middle of like the California desert or something. We're not, for anybody listening at home. But our community should really and truly should mourn our departure if that were to happen. Our community should be negatively affected because we should be the kind of people who are so involved, so intentional in doing the work of God's kingdom that our community is getting better and better every single day. A church building, the church is not the building, you are the church. This is not. The church building, though, should be a lighthouse within a community. Why do we have church buildings? Well, we have church buildings in part because none of you have a house big enough for all of us to gather in. Okay? We have church buildings not because we necessarily want to build shrines or, or anything like that. That's not what it's about. Why was it important for us as we considered what this new building would look like over the course of what seemed like 47 years? It really wasn't quite that long, but it seemed like we worked on it forever. It was important to the vision team that this building made this community better. What a shame would it be for we as a church to put a building up in the middle of a community and lower house, home values around us. Would that be a good testimony to Christ? You go, well, it shouldn't be a big deal. We're just worshiping. Let me tell you something. If they moved in next to you, you wouldn't have the same opinion. If you don't love Jesus especially, and somebody goes and puts up this ugly, nasty industrial building beside your house, and it lowers your home value, nobody, you don't go, hey, I bet those Christian people over there in that church, they're awesome. It was important to us that this building actually enhanced the community. We wanted our neighbors to look and say, thank you for helping me to have a nicer place to live. But of course, it's not all about buildings, okay? Though, interestingly, one of the first church buildings ever was in Capernaum. Archaeologists found it 30 years or so ago, 25, 30 years ago. Um, and it, it, was, it was just a short walk from the synagogue at Capernaum where Jesus' Jesus's ministry is introduced right here that we just learned about last week. Now, this is where it gets really exciting. Archaeologists suspect based on their findings, that that first church building became a designated church building somewhere around about 100 A.D. But prior to that, it was a home. It was a, a, a larger than normal, but not huge, slightly larger than normal, typical home in Capernaum. 
And as they began to dig and, and, and excavate this site, they found that the, the central room of the home had been plastered, which was uncommon for the time. Somewhere around 100 AD, the pottery, the dishes in the home changed. They were no longer small dishes for eating and drinking and all those other things. Instead, they were filled with large pottery. It was consistent with things being stored and lots and lots of oil lamps. And as they began to dig into some of the inscriptions and the graffiti on the walls, what they determined is that this building was originally a home, but this home became a permanent worship place for believers. And it lived there, or it lived there. It, it existed for a couple of hundred years and it was eventually replaced with a larger church building. Now, based on what they read in the scriptures and what the archaeologists or the, the archaeologists have, have discovered, the suspicion is that this home that became one of the earliest church buildings was actually the home of Peter. The home of Peter right here in Capernaum. Now, if we read all the biblical accounts, we begin to, 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 to take, take a, a, build a picture of Jesus making some sort of a residence in Capernaum, but we know he didn't have his own home. There's a suspicion that maybe Jesus lived with Peter at least part of the time. And this was the place where Jesus went in and he, he, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He was being refreshed and encouraged. And then we're going to see in just a few minutes that the people came to be ministered to. It's in this home that became a venerated site after the death and resurrection of Jesus that became one of the very first church buildings. Of course, it's interesting to see that this building was first used for Christian purposes to heal the sick and the lame and the blind. It was a place where sinners came to be healed. The demon-possessed found hope. The very first church building was a hospital for sinners, just as all of ours should be. This is the picture we have right here of Jesus as he cares for the world, or, or excuse me, cares for the people of, of Capernaum in Mark chapter 1. How are you making the world a better place? You notice that Jesus did it one person at a time, and we're called to do the same thing, but how can we get there? How can you be the kind of person as a Christian who makes this world better? Do you know there are some people in our culture who argue that we as Christians are actually making the world worse? That we are the problem, okay? Um, in Greenville County, right now, there is, a, there is a ministry headquartered in Greenville County. Uh, they serve as a foster care agency across eight counties in our state. And they train, they're, they're called Miracle Hill Ministries, they train uh, and have trained scores of families, Christian families, for foster care and ultimately for adoption, and yet they, right now, today, are under investigation by DSS. And, 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 and unless something's changed in the last week, DSS has said to them they have to change their charter and their vision and their purpose or they will, be, they will have their license revoked. They can't be an exclusively Christian organization and in partnership with the Department of Social Services because, according to them, that makes the world worse. Now, what, what has broken my heart as I've read it is that people that have come in and said, all these Christians are making it worse because you're making it harder for children to come into care. Of course, that's not the case at all. All these Christian families have flocked to Miracle Hill Ministries as an opportunity to care for those that are orphaned and in desperate need. Our world doesn't always see it that way. What can we do to change that? How do we overcome that? First thing I want to say is that we need to be driven by worship. We need to be driven by worship. 
Bible says that Jesus was in the synagogue. He immediately left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he went into Simon and Andrew's house. James and John were with him. And here they walk in and there's, there's Simon and Peter. Remember, same person. Um, there's Peter's mother-in-law laying sick. But what was it that drove Jesus there? What, what, where was he just before these acts of mercy? He was in worship. He'd gone to the synagogue. Now, he led the worship, obviously, there. He even had a power encounter in there. He cast out a demon in the synagogue. Lots of incredible things going on. But Jesus began this ministry of mercy after having gone and gathered with the people of God. Can I say to you this morning that if you're going to be engaged in ministries of mercy, you must be driven by worship of Jesus Christ. You must be driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's often a tension that surrounds evangelism and gospel ministry versus mercy ministry. This idea that we can't be both evangelistic and be serious in the community making a difference in the lives of people. Can I just say that that is just false? It's just not true. Now, this tension has historical roots even here. Liberal Christianity jettisons any idea of, of the, salva- the, the saving necessity of the gospel. The social gospel, which was... This is, we're getting into a history lesson. We're going to come back to the sermon in a minute, I promise. But the social gospel that was uh, championed by uh, people like Walter Rauschenbusch and others argued that there was really no need to engage people with the message of the gospel. Doing good things was the gospel. Well, folks, that's obviously not true. But it's also not true that we can't be both missional with the heart and hands and the feet of Jesus and evangelistic with the message of Jesus. It must be the message of Jesus that drives the work of Jesus in our life. Max Stiles has a really helpful book where he explains the process through which the gospel can be lost generationally in a church. This is where we got to work diligently. Max Stiles says the first generation accepts the gospel. And if we're not careful, the next generation assumes the gospel The third generation neglects the gospel, and the fourth generation rejects the gospel. We have to be careful with that. This is what that looks like. This looks like a first-generation Christian. Family comes to our church. Mom, dad get saved. Things are amazing. The Lord, through his saving work, changes their family, changes the whole trajectory for their family. It thrills my soul when I see families come to Christ. Moms and dads get saved, and I'm going to tell you, we watch the trajectory for their children change overnight. Overnight. So mom and dad get saved. They get, they, they, everything is going great. But they don't invest heavily in their children teaching them the things of the Lord. And so their children grow up. They've been in the church their whole life. They've kind of become inoculated with the gospel. Right? Now, they're not opposed to the gospel. But they just kind of assume that everybody around them knows Jesus. Any of you have had those assumptions? I have those sometimes. I'll walk in and I just assume everybody's on the same page and then I find out that nobody's on the same page. If we're not careful, we can assume that everybody not only knows who Jesus is, but that everybody has the same understanding of Christ that we do and everybody has a relationship with Him. That begins to happen if we're not careful, if we're not intentional in our teaching. So that next generation just assumes. They're not opposed to Jesus. Not opposed to they want to go do good things in the world and they assume that all the people they're serving know that they're there because of Jesus. They assume that all the people around them know who Christ is. The third generation neglects the gospel. The third generation, because their parents, their spiritual parents, maybe their church has begun to assume that the gospel is, is, is around. So, listen, they're still doing Bible studies and all those but they assume everybody's on the same page. But the third generation, they just sat the Bible down. We'll get around to that when we can. We're going to go out because, look, 
this is a 2,000-year-old book and it matters, but we need to do something right now. I've seen this a lot in the wake of, of, of the tragedy in Florida just a few weeks ago. I've seen this a lot on social media with a lot of people that said, well, you've prayed, now what are you going to do? I see it a lot when people say, well, this doesn't affect who we are today. What are we going to do today? Let's put this down and let's focus on what we can change. Folks, listen, when we put this down, we lose our grounding and our base and our understanding for what we can do in this world around us. But that's how it gets neglected. But then the fourth generation, the fourth generation comes in, they just absolutely reject this word. The fourth generation says, to be the people of Jesus doesn't mean that we're handcuffed by a 2,000-year-old tradition. We need to be in the community and making a difference. Folks, if worship doesn't drive you into mission, mission can become an event all unto itself. Billy Graham's funeral was just this past week, and I haven't had a chance to watch it. Angela recorded it for me. Billy Graham's example is a wonderful example of a person who can be utterly, absolutely, and totally committed to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, while also committed to changing the world and being involved in mercy ministries. Billy Graham, I shared this on Wednesday night, but Billy Graham was known for his evangelism. But Billy Graham also preached one of the first desegregated, integrated evangelistic crusades in the country after segregation. Billy Graham took down the barricades himself, told them he would not preach if they were put back up because Billy Graham believed that all men were created equal. Billy Graham believed that all people of all races should have the same opportunity to come together in the same places. Billy Graham bailed Martin Luther King out of jail when he was arrested for his nonviolent protests. Those aren't the things that Billy Graham's primarily known for. Why? Because the gospel drove what he did. But in the midst of proclaiming the gospel, it didn't stop him from being engaged in gospel work in the world around him. Y'all, we must be driven by our worship. But listen, our worship should drive us out this door. If we've got a picture of a God who loves the whole wide world and wants, and, and, and wants that none should perish, we should also have a picture of a God that loves them enough to want that none should suffer. And we should do all that we can to alleviate suffering and pain in the world around us. When we read, God so loved the world, we should look out that door and say, God loves the world, and as his child, I must love them too. Folks, what are you doing? What are you doing today? How has a worship of a holy God pushed you out the doors of a church building and into the community, the mission field around you to make a difference? If you die today, is the world going to miss you? And when I say miss you, I don't mean are they going to cry at your funeral. I mean are they going to wonder how in the world are we going to fill the hole that was left when this lady left us. Be driven by worship. Second, care for those around you. Start at home. Start at home. I see a lot of folks that want to get into to, to missions and ministry. I want to go do something. And I ask, what are you doing today? What are you doing right now? Jesus immediately left the synagogue. He entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill. Jesus didn't then say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Simon, Peter. We can't handle it. Listen, we keep reading. They came, or he, um, uh, a fever about him. And he came and took her by the hand and left her. Uh, missed it. I'm sorry. In the other gospel accounts, we see that they say to him, she is sick. She's sick. 
They've seen Jesus at work. Peter didn't go home and assume that the work that Jesus came to do is only for other people. Peter said that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ actually matters in my life and in my home today. If you want to make a difference in the world around you, be driven by worship. But folks, also care for those around you. Start at home. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul warns, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God forbid that you would be committed to going across the country or across the world to be the hands and the feet of Jesus or be the mouthpiece of Jesus, then that you would not also be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus in your own backyard. God forbid that we would be willing to go and do and not be willing to stay and do. Now, am I saying to you that you shouldn't leave and go do ministry until everything's been accomplished in the world around you? I'm not saying that at all. Sometimes the Lord calls us to go. But don't wait until you get there to make a difference. What are you doing in the world around you right now? How is it that you are making the world better for your own parents and friends and relatives and neighbors? We talk about making the world a better place, and so often we think about the world without thinking about our own neighborhood, our own community. Our own household, our parents, our children, our grandchildren. Jesus is very plain in the, in, in, in the parables that he who is faithful with a little will be allowed to be faithful with much. But why in the world we, would we assume that, that we could be trusted to be faithful with larger opportunities for ministry if we've not been faithful in ministering to those who are closest to us? Do you want to make a difference in the world for the cause of Christ? Start at home. What does that look like? Looks like dads, it looks like leading in your home. Wives, it looks like coming alongside your husband. What's it look like to lead in your home? Can I say it's not quite as hard as we sometimes make it out to be? Accept responsibility. ABCs of being a man. Accept responsibility. Be present. Be present emotionally, spiritually, physically, as often as you can. Okay? And then there's a C that's something awesome that won't come to me right now, but in a minute it will. It's pretty terrible, right? Connect with others. That's what the third one was. Connect with others. Okay, connect with other people who are trying to do that. That's what the church is about. Connecting with other, other, other people. Men, connect with other men. Because guess what? We're all going through these things together. We all have the same struggles. We're all trying to figure out how to love our wives really well and love our children really well. Ladies, what do you do to minister to your husband? When he comes home and he does something like praise with the family, you don't correct his prayer, you pat him on the back and say, great job. When he wants to lead your family in a devotion and he doesn't do it exactly as you would have, listen, here's a really spiritual phrase for you. Shut up! (laughs) See how spiritual that is? And just in case you all think I'm being unspiritual, remember Jesus told the demon to shut up. I'm not saying that you wives are demons. I'm just saying sometimes... Listen, sometimes the best thing, the most spiritual thing we can do is keep our mouths shut. Do you know that? I struggle with this. <laughs> Y'all didn't all have to laugh. I didn't, I didn't hush. 
let's move on. Sometimes we need to start ministry right in our own home. There's a reason that Paul gives us all of those qualifications for deacons and elders. Those character qualifications. One is that he manages his household well. That his children are obedient. You know, that is a scriptural expectation for those who would lead in Christ's church. That his children are well behaved. Why? Because why in the world would we assume that a man could have leadership opportunities and, and, and responsibilities in the church if he can't even lead in his own home? Ministry starts at home. It looks different in everybody's home. But it still starts right there. It starts right there in your backyard. See, it, it, it goes from home to neighbor to parent to cousins. It starts right in the place where you are. Care for those around you. Be careful. Be careful assuming that the Lord's going to open up all these ministry opportunities for you way away somewhere until you first been responsible to take care of your own house. Cut your own grass before you worry about cutting somebody else's. You, might, you don't ever know. The Lord may just teach you something. He may just train you. He may transform your family because of your faithfulness to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to care for those around you. Third, this morning, serve those the Lord brings you. I want you to work with me. So he came and he took her by the hand. He lifted her up and the fever left her. and She began to serve him. Now, listen, there's a difference we get when Jesus casts out demons and Jesus heals people. When Jesus is casting out demons, he's not often laying hands on them. When Jesus is casting out demons, he's saying things like, shut up and come out. Because when Jesus is casting out demons, the number one thing they got to understand is he's in charge. The authority of Jesus Christ, one who is greater than you, has shown up on the scene. And they leave when Jesus is healing those who are sick and afflicted. There's often a touch involved. It's the tender care of Jesus as he comes alongside those and he cares well for them. Y'all, listen. When we are oppressed by demons, we don't need Jesus to coddle us. We need Jesus to save us. You hear me? When the demons have invaded, we don't need Jesus to coddle us. We need Him to save us, whatever the cost. And pray that we can endure the exorcism as we talked about last week. But there are other times when Jesus sees us at the point of our need. And He cares and He ministers for us. And so for Simon's mother, for, He reaches down, He takes her by the hand, and He picks her up. We're going to see Jesus occasionally touch the unclean and the blind. He's going to give them healing and care and love he's going to let them know that they matter jesus is going to touch the people that nobody else in the world would touch okay so he he, he picks her up and she begins immediately to serve right she begins to care for those in her house then at evening, sundown, or, or the, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. If you had a busy day, let's talk about Jesus' Saturday. 
So on this Saturday, Jesus gets up and he shows up at the synagogue. Nobody really knows who Jesus is, but he's got these four new friends following me, him and his little disciples, and they roll up into the synagogue. And they sit around and they go, has anybody got a message for us today? Anybody got a word? Jesus says, I got a word. You mind if I speak? Well, who are you? Well, just give me a second. I think I got something y'all will appreciate. The Bible says Jesus begins to speak, and we talked about this last week. The people were amazed because he spoke to them not like their other leaders. He spoke as one with authority. Jesus wasn't like the other scribes and rabbis. Those other scribes and rabbis, they name dropped so that they could get some notoriety. You know what a name drop is, right? You walk in to meet somebody and you go, hey, you know, um, uh, Johnny sent me here. You know Johnny, right? The guy, that, uh, the guy that gave you the deal in that car a few years ago. That guy. That guy sent me. That's what a name drop is. These people say, well, I know so-and-so, and I know so-and-so, and I know so-and-so, and so you should trust me because i got this long line. Jesus walks in. They go, who are you? He says, it doesn't matter. My daddy's a carpenter. He's dead. My mother was pregnant with me before she was married. But I think i got something for you. And he begins to speak, and the people are amazed because Jesus doesn't speak to them as the scribes and the, and the rabbis did. He speaks as one with authority. The only name he drops is the name of his father. He is the word made flesh. And the people are blown away at his message. So this is how Jesus' Sabbath begins. He begins communicating. In the middle of his sermon, Jesus preaching. Some dude stands up in the back. This is a large synagogue in Capernaum. Stone structure. Dude stands up and says, what have you to do with us? I know who you are. Remember we talked about it last week. The demons recognized him, but the people, in the people in the synagogue, they didn't know who Jesus was, and they didn't even know a demon was among them. But the demon knew exactly what was going on. This was a spiritual battle, and he knew he was fixing to lose. I know who you are. What have you come to do with us? And Jesus says, you shut up, and you leave. The Bible says the demon exited the premises. Imagine the uproar in that place. Again, Mark is very brief in his account of this, but I want you to imagine, I want you to envision the picture. This dude, the demon leaves, man hits the floor. Man, we talked about it last week. Maybe there's blood everywhere. Maybe smashed his head on the, on, the, on the stone floor when he fell. Spitting out of his mouth. He's seizing on the floor. Perhaps the people didn't immediately say, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. Perhaps the people initially put hands on him and said, what have you done to our friend? There's a power encounter on the back end of a sermon. Jesus must have surely been exhausted. And he shows up at Peter's house to get something to eat and to rest. And he walks in the door and there is no rest on this Sabbath day because when he gets there, they're like, oh yeah, Jesus, we didn't mention this on the way, but... um." My mother-in-law's sick, and since we saw what you did back there, why don't you just, maybe if you could possibly... The Bible says Jesus walks in. Luke, the doctor, gives us the story of how Jesus examined her because as the doctor, this is what he would have done. He stood over her. And Luke must have been in amazement going, I'm going to stand over her too. Let's see what we can do. And so Dr. Luke and Dr. Jesus are standing side by side. So you've got the physician and the great physician. And Luke's got this fever... He says, there's a fever, there's nothing we can do. And Jesus says, stand back. And he reaches down and he grabs her by the hand. The Bible says he rebuked the fever and the fever left her. She wasn't weak, she wasn't, she wasn't tired. She stood up and immediately she began to serve. Because when Jesus heals, he heals to the uttermost. You get that? He's finished, right? He does it all. That's the kind of God we serve. 
So she begins to serve him. So finally, maybe Jesus begins to catch his breath. Maybe she gives him some bread, some grape juice because they were Baptists, some dried fish. He's just beginning to settle in. And nobody's been around because it's the Sabbath, right? No, this lady's not doing a whole lot of work in the house. This is the Sabbath. Everyone is resting. But the Jewish Sabbath ran from when? Sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. And so the Bible is very explicit right here. That evening after sundown, you see what's happened? Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And Jesus made a bit of an uproar. And just as Jesus is getting comfortable, night's beginning to settle in, maybe he's looking forward to laying his head down, there's a knock at the door. Hey, is, uh, is Jesus here? What do, you, what do you need with Jesus? Well, I, I heard what happened in the synagogue, and there's this rumor about your... Why is your mother-in-law up? What? I thought she was sick! Well, she was, but Jesus... But, well, listen, my, my son's here. He's had the same fever that your mother-in-law's had. Do you think Jesus can do anything? And Jesus comes to the door, and there in the doorway, Jesus begins to minister. He begins to serve, and he begins to care. The people flock to him because he's that kind of person. The people flock, and he takes the sick by the hand, and he heals them. And he looks at the demons, and he says, you leave. The demons leave. They leave these people and these people convulse on the ground. But they come up. They've endured the exorcism. And they're so grateful. And Jesus' fame begins to spread far and wide. Now next week we're going to see that early in the morning Jesus got up and left. He was wore out. Y'all, what does it look like? To show mercy, to do ministries of mercy in our world. We must be driven by worship. We must care for those around us. And then, y'all, we must serve those that the Lord brings us. Can I tell you that serving Jesus doesn't always fit your calendar or your clock? There are times when you will have given all that you have to give. And you got to find more because there's more work to be done. Serving Jesus is not for those addicted to comfort. We can't always be comfortable and serve the Lord. Serving, those, serving Jesus is not for those who are unwilling to have their schedules interrupted. Serving Jesus means that occasionally we need to stop talking about interruptions and start talking about opportunities. Because often the best ministry opportunities in my life don't happen with appointments. They happen in the margins. I tell people oftentimes that the best ministry in the church often takes place not in the sanctuary, not in the classrooms, and not in my office. It takes place in the hallways. In the hallways. When somebody comes up and puts your arm around somebody and says, how have you been? Just this morning, I had the opportunity to speak with one of our folks in the hallway and hear about some of the struggles. I now know how to pray. Because I know what's going on in that person's life. Can I tell you that I didn't have time for that conversation this morning? One of our men looked at me yesterday. It's about 5.30. We were trying to get out of this barbecue excitement slash nightmare. Where's Buster? I figure he's judging me somewhere. There he is. I was just kidding. I loved every minute of it. Um, 
Well, one of our men looked at me and he said, Craig, when have you had time to prepare your sermon this week? Some of you are sitting there going, that's what I was wondering. (laughs) Well, listen, I needed that time this morning. I needed it. I wanted it. I'd scheduled it. I'd planned it. And yet God had a different plan. He had a different intent for my life for about five minutes. And you know what? The world didn't stop. It didn't end. Serve those that the Lord brings you. Consider this. What are the things in your life that create boundaries that keep you from serving faithfully? What are the things? Is it your personality? Do you have the kind of personality that causes people to feel like they can't approach you? Do you? If so, how does that keep you from having opportunities to care for others? Is it your house? What does your house look like? Is your house your castle? Is your home your castle that you guard carefully with locked doors and doorbells? Or is your home the place where you open the front door and invite people to come in? Which is it? How is it that you open yourself up for opportunities for ministry? (laughs) Angel and I bought a car one time. Well, we bought a few cars, but we bought a car. We come pulling into our driveway. We're on our way back. We didn't have children. We were excited. We had a car, no kids to deal with. We're just, we're going to go have a nice dinner. We're going to enjoy one another. We get a call. Hey, where are you? We just bought a car. Well, can I stop by your house? Sure, you can stop by our house. That'd be great. That's exactly what we were hoping for tonight. You know what it turned out to be? One of the best experiences of our life. One of the greatest joys of our ministry. Because there was somebody within our church that felt a a great enough level of comfort to say, you just bought a car, but I don't care because I need to talk to you right now and I know that y'all will just make room. Listen, y'all, that thrilled my soul. I love it when people come and knock on the door. Do you have a minute? When I get a call in the office, what are you doing? Nothing. That's what I do all day. I'm waiting on you to call. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. At night, in the dark. When he was tired. Jesus made time. How are you making the world a better place? How? Now, now I want to admit to you, I want to acknowledge that today this sermon has been geared primarily for those of you who are here today who follow Jesus. Those who belong to Christ, who call yourself a Christian. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to challenge those of you who belong to Jesus to act like Jesus. Okay? It's not enough to pray for missions or give to missions. It's not enough to put it on Facebook. Okay? It's not. It's time for we as the believers of Jesus to take seriously the teachings of Jesus, to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that He's given. Thank you, Buster, for reading that passage this morning. The Bible says... Jesus said that he was going to leave because it was actually better for us to have the Holy Spirit in us than to have Jesus with us. 
Pretty incredible, right? You have the Spirit of God to go with you. You never go anywhere all by yourself. So I'm challenging you as the people of Jesus to act like Jesus. Period. But maybe there's some of you here today that don't know Jesus. And maybe the reason you don't know Jesus is because the picture of Jesus' followers doesn't sound a whole lot like, doesn't look a whole lot like the picture that I've painted today. Maybe in your mind, Jesus' followers look like angry people who yell and scream on TV all the time or put dumb things on the internet. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus' followers who are doing what Jesus says are the people who get into this world and get their hands dirty and make the world better because they follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I want you to know that if you've had an experience with followers of Jesus that look different than this picture, I'm sorry, but I want you to know that you shouldn't judge Jesus based on the way that somebody might have tried to misrepresent him. Because the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus that compels us to serve, that Jesus loves you. That Jesus is not overly concerned with all of the things that you have done because that Jesus will get out of bed in the middle of the night and meet you right where you are. You come knock at his door, he says, I am ready. He can take all of your sins and wipe them away. He will forgive you. He will accept you. He will save you. Why? Because He loves you. He loves you. Like, really loves you. And He accepts you no matter where you've been or what you've done. And then He changes you. He remakes you. He doesn't make you into something that will terrify you. He makes you into that version of you that you always wished you could be. He makes you into that version of you that deep down you know exists somewhere. Well, it exists because He created you to be that version. And He's the missing part. He fuels you toward all that He created you to be. So my challenge this morning is this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, would you come today and become all that He created you to be? Number one. Number two, if you do know the Lord Jesus Christ, would you lay aside your addictions to comfort? Would you lay aside all the other things that entangle you? And would you pursue Him with all that you have and be willing to serve Him? Be propelled by worship to care for those closest to you and to care for those the Lord brings to you. And to trust that as you are faithful, He will continue to give you greater opportunities to serve Him. Would you surrender yourself to Christ today? Let's pray. God in heaven, we give you glory, praise, and honor. I thank you for your love. Lord, we pray that we would learn to cherish you more and more. Lord, make us into the children that you'd have us to be. Make us into the followers you'd have us to be. Lord, make us look like you. In Jesus' name, amen.